Let's open the precious Word of God to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I love the Lord. I love the Word of the Lord. And I love the Lord of this Word. And I hope that you are all in agreement with me. We want to understand the epistle of Paul to the Romans. Inspired by the God of heaven. More sure than hearing God's voice from heaven in the presence of heavenly and earthly witnesses. Romans chapter 3, let me read to you verses 9 through 20. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Amen Amen and amen. Romans is the gospel of God. It is the most thorough, the most extensive, and the first presentation by an apostle of the gospel of God in your New Testaments. We do not believe that the order of the New Testament books are merely happen chance. The Lord God of heaven by providence put Romans first of all the epistles. And it is called the gospel of God in Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, where Paul said, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. When the gospel is preached, the first thing that must be done is to preach the condemnation and guilt of all men so that they will understand their need of a Savior first, and so that they will understand that there is nothing they can do to add to the finished work of salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you start with guilt and condemnation and the terror of the Lord. Let me show you his terror that has been accumulating in chapters 1, 2, and 3. This argument of Paul to condemn all Jews and Gentiles began at 1.18. And I repeat myself repeatedly, so that you can learn this epistle, and you can teach it to others. Because Paul would say, when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. If you would exercise your senses to discern good and evil, by referring to these passages, and by applying them, you would accumulate them in your heart, mind, and lips. 
118 begins Paul's argument and it runs to 320. He must condemn all Jews and Gentiles, especially the Jews, in order to set the stage for overthrowing any thoughts of Jewish legalism that salvation was in part because they were Jews, related to Abraham, circumcised, or participating in Moses' religion. He has to cut all that off. But I want you to notice the accumulating terror of the Lord. 118, for the wrath of God. 120, they are without excuse. 24, God gave them up. 26, God gave them up. 28, God gave them over. 32, that such things are worthy of death. 2-1, you are condemned. 2-2, the judgment of God. 2-3, the judgment of God. Verse 5 of chapter 2, the wrath, the day of wrath of God, and the righteous judgment of God. 2-6, who will render to every man according to his works. 2-8, indignation and wrath. 2-9, tribulation and anguish. 2-16, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. 3-6, For then how shall God judge the world? Do you get the point? Romans 1.18 through 3.20 is describing the wrath, the indignation of Almighty God in His judgment upon sinners who stand guilty and condemned before Him. And Paul is wrapping up the argument in verses 9 through 20 by bringing the scriptures of the Jews to bear on the Jews. They are still asking, by Paul's rhetorical question in verse 9, are we better than they? Paul, after what you said in verse 2, that much every way we are blessed to be Jews, are we better than the Gentiles? No! In no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, Paul has saved the best for last, and now he brings their own scriptures in which they trusted to come to bear on them. They made their boast of God and rested in the law. Verse 17 of chapter 2. But Paul is going to take where they rested and turn it to be his hammer and break them in pieces until every mouth is stopped, meaning Jewish mouths, verse 19 And all the world becomes guilty before God, meaning Jews are pressed down to the same level as Gentiles. Because when it says, now we know, who in the world is he talking to? He is addressing his Jewish brethren. Now we know that what, what we, now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. That was the Jews. That every mouth may be stopped. And so Paul's quoting scripture. Last Sunday we dealt with verses 10 through 12. Today, let's go right to verse 13. Verse 13, their throat is an open sepulcher. In the next four clauses, Paul goes after the mouth. Paul goes after the mouth and his purpose is very simple. He wants to bring the scriptures of God to bear on men in ways that they will all have to admit, I have been guilty a time or two for these sins and therefore The scriptures do condemn me to shut every mouth and that all the world may become guilty. One of the easiest ways we sin 
is with this flapper right here and this piece, this muscle that hangs between our jaws. And we sin so easily, it's gone. And we wish we could pull it back. We wish we could reel it in. We lie in our beds and we grieve about things we've said. We sometimes grieve about them seconds after they're said. When we drive away from a, of a, of a meeting with somebody, we grieve about the things we said. It could have been said better. It should have been said better. I shouldn't have said that. I should have said this. Our lips get us into so much trouble. And so the Apostle Paul, in his theological presentation of the Gospel, condemns the Jews by just bringing to bear six passages of Scripture in a row. But what he, the first passage was Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, that's in verses 10 through 12. Here is Psalm 5 in the first two clauses, but they're against the tongue. Now the purpose is, and I know I'm repeating myself, the purpose is for Paul to get the Jews condemned. But while we go through this passage, let's get ourselves condemned, and let's also get ourselves exhorted to guard our speech. Their throat is an open sepulcher. We have already read that this morning in Psalm 5 and verse 9, which read, For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. Remember that these verses that are being pulled forward by Paul are primarily to condemn the Jews, who are still wondering, are we better than they? And so Paul's going to take their own scriptures and show them that they have sinned by all these measures that their own scriptures state are rules of condemnation. They know what Psalm 5 said. You may not know what Psalm 5 said before we read it this morning, but the Jews did. The Jews knew that it said, Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. The Jews knew that, and they knew that now they were in Psalm 5, in the wrong parts of Psalm 5, because of this little statement right here, their throat is an open sepulcher. An open sepulcher. When you open the door of a sepulcher, and a sepulcher is the tomb of a dead person, when you open up the door of a sepulcher, a stench comes out. When Jesus said, roll away the stone, in John chapter 11, the, the sisters of Lazarus said, Lord, uh, we've got a problem here. He's been dead four days and he stinks. Because there's rotten filth in there. And your body is, all, is trying to get to rotten filth right now. The reason you eat and drink and, forgive me, defecate, is to keep you from turning into rotten filth right now. The second after you die... You turn into rotten filth. A few hours after you die, you will stink. An open sepulcher reveals all that stench. When we open our mouths, look what it says, their throat is an open sepulcher. When we open our mouths, what comes out? The stink of our hearts. Pride comes out, we boast. Wickedness comes out, we slander. A lack of mercy comes out. We criticize. And so forth and so on. We have more to cover here than just their throat is an open sepulcher. Let every reader, let every hearer, let every person tremble before these words. Their throat is an open sepulcher. This is not describing men who are horrible in speech. This is describing all men. The reason 
The reason that Paul is raising this passage is to get the most religious man on earth pressed down to the paganism of the Gentiles, the Jews themselves. Their throat is an open sepulcher. David was not talking about the Egyptians in Psalm 5. David was talking about a category of Jews in Psalm 5. And Paul's bringing that to bear against them. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5 for a moment with me. Oh, let's hurry, brethren, but we we can't hurry too fast. I've already made the point of the theological lesson that Paul's making, and that lesson is, you Jews, I've already proved that you're condemned equal with the Gentiles. I've already done, didn't he say that in verse 9? For we have before proved. When was that before? Last year? No, it was in chapters 1 and 2. We, and by the way, if you ever want to use a plural pronoun referring to yourself just to show a little bit of modesty, I wonder where that was learned. For we have before proved. Who proved it? Paul did. In Romans 1 and 2. And never mind. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that all are under sin. He's already done it, but now he's bringing these scriptures to bear. I want to give you an example in Ephesians chapter 5 about our speech. Look at verse 3. Ephesians 5, 3. But fornication and all uncleanness. That's not going 48 hours without a bath or shower. That is sexual uncleanness. Look it up in the Bible. Neither filthiness, verse 3, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, three sins, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. That's filthy talking, that's foolish talking, and that's jestful talking. Instead of using your mouth in those directions, you should use your mouth to give thanks. Verse 5, For this ye know, that no whoremonger, that's back to verse 3 in the fornicator, nor unclean person, that's back to verse 3 in the sin of uncleanness, nor covetous man, that's back to verse 3, and the sin of covetousness, who is an idolater, covetousness is a terrible sin, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things, six things, cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. Don't you partake with the world in those six sins, three of which involve your mouth, or two of which, three of which involve your mouth, there in the fourth verse. Foolish talking, filthy talking, and justful talking. Instead, we should be using our lips to thank and praise God. Because it's those things that are bringing the wrath of God upon the children of men. The wrath of God is in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. 3, 13 says, their throat is an open sepulcher. Jesus would teach in Matthew chapter 12, how can a good man bring evil things out of a good heart? When you open your mouth, you show your heart. That is, those are horrible words. Matthew chapter 12 says that we shall give an account for every idle word in the day of judgment. Matthew 12 says, how can a man with an evil heart bring forth good things? I have told you a hundred times if I've told you once. As soon as I say amen and you have a conversation with somebody in this assembly, you will know what kind of a heart they have. A heart cannot be hid. You will know. Either they are giving thanks or they are complaining and whining about something. 
They're complaining and whining because they have a black, filthy, evil heart that will spend eternity in hell. If they're praising God and thanking God, they have a good heart that has been changed, and that heart will spend eternity in heaven. Mark your words. The next clause in verse 13. With their tongues, they have used deceit. This comes out of Psalm 5-9 as well, although Paul by the Holy Spirit has slightly altered the words in Psalm 5-9. In Psalm 5-9, the clause says, they flatter with their tongue. Flattering is lying. Flattering is deceit. It's pretending something that you don't really mean. Paul will take it here and say, with their tongues, they have used deceit. The Bible condemns all deceitful speech. Look at Proverbs chapter 20. How honest are you? Do you exaggerate? Are you quick to correct someone if they misunderstood something and exaggerated your accomplishments? If someone misunderstood something and you heard them say to someone else that you got straight A's and you knew that there was one B plus on that report card, are you honest enough to jump on that situation and get that corrected? Because you wouldn't want anyone going around with a misunderstanding that you're intelligent. With their tongues, they have used deceit. Look at 2014. Proverbs 20 and verse 14. This is just a few reminders, brethren, of things we've been over before. It is not. It is not. Saith the buyer. This car ain't worth nothing. Saith the buyer. That chainsaw ain't worth nothing. That thing's been used and abused. It ain't worth nothing. It is not. It is not, saith the buyer. But when he has gone his way, then he boasteth. On his way home, he picks up his cell phone and calls a friend. You would not believe what I bought. I just bought a 2005 Buick, and I got it for $4,000 under trade-in. You know what my answer is to that? Go to hell. If you nickel and dime down the seller by telling them that there were problems with that vehicle, any problem with that vehicle, and then you told someone else that you got it a whole lot cheaper than you should have, you are a lying thief. Go to hell. That's where you belong. Do you know the people that nickel and dime and argue and want to barter the most? They're always the poorest. Always the poorest. Always the poorest. Somebody that wants to always buy below asking price is always the poorest. Always! There are no exceptions to this rule. Because there is a God in heaven that measures all of those transactions and He blesses the man that will pay asking price or, if there's negotiation needed, will do it very fairly, justly, and honestly. You do not get ahead by negotiating with sellers and then boasting about it later because you're a liar on one of the two sides of that conversation. Either you are a liar to the seller or you're a liar in boasting. Enough said. I can't elaborate on 2014. But it is... This is, this is how the devil destroys men. The devil deceives someone that thinks they can get ahead by cheating a seller. You'll never get ahead. That's why you're so poor. Pay asking price and all of a sudden you're going to be ahead. The Lord multiplies what's left over. Right. He loves honesty. He's a God of truth. We have to go on. What's the next clause? Oh, we want to get close to home, don't we? 
You know, I'm half Scotch and half Jew by nature and training. I love to barter and to dicker as much as anyone. However, I've also learned to love paying asking price. If it's even close, pay asking price. If it's a widow that's asking a price, pay her extra. Give her a tip. You'll never lose. Prosperity comes by God's blessing. God lifts up one and puts down another, and He does it based on how honest and generous you are. The liberal soul shall be made fat. The stingy soul is always going to be in poverty. We must go on. The poison of asps is under their lips. Proverbs chapter 12. If I told you to return to Romans, I was wrong. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 18. The clause, the third clause in verse 13 is the poison of asps. An asp is a small venomous serpent found in Egypt and Libya. It's a word used to describe a small venomous snake. It's a viper. It's a word for a viper. It's a word for an adder, an asp. Has poison within it. And when, if you've ever spoken, if you've ever spoken and hurt somebody, if you've ever spoken and bit somebody, you're in Romans 3. You're in Romans 3. And we're condemned with the Jews. Just think about the Jews listening to this. At verse 9, they were thankful that Paul asked the rhetorical question, Are we better than they? They were looking forward to Paul's answer that yes, the Jews were a little bit better. And then he brings these verses to bear. The poison of asps is under their lips. Have you ever hurt anyone by your speech? Look at 12.18. There is that speaketh like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. If you are a wise and righteous man, when you open your mouth, you make people feel better. You nourish people. You lift them up. You comfort them. You make them happy. You make them glad. You make them secure. You raise their trust in you and and men and God. But if you hurt them, there is that speaketh like the piercings of a sword. Cholerics, I address you. You cut people. And you walk out of the room and you don't even know that people are bleeding because of your speech. You cut them. Your sarcasm. Your cutting remarks. Phlegmatics, you can be just as cutting. Because the three times a year you finally say something, when it comes out and it's sharp or it's sarcastic, it hurts 20 times. As when I do it, because people are used to it three times a day from me. So phlegmatics, don't sit there on your high horse or in your ivory palace or in your glass house and think that the one that has to preach this message is the one that should be preaching it. The poison of asps is under their lips. Have you ever bit somebody with your speech? Thankfully, there's a glorious disjunctive at verse 21. But could I preach a while on speech? Does the Bible have more to say about it than I've said so far? Let's go to Romans 3.14. It's this short. You don't need to... I'll read it to you. We may have to come back here. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. This is a description of the wicked. Our mouths do not come forth with the praise and the thanksgiving that they should. They do not come forth and feed many like they should. Our lips should feed other people. The words that we speak, a word fitly spoken, is like apples of gold and pitchers of silver. A man that giveth the right answer, he should be kissed on the lips. 
That is what we should be aiming for, is to always say the right thing that benefits people and doesn't hurt anyone. Lord, guard our mouths. David was so convicted by this at one point in one psalm, he said, I'm not going to say a word. I'm going to lock my lips and I'm not going to say a word because I sin so frequently with my words. Solomon said, in a multitude of words, there wanteth not sin. Meaning the more you talk, the higher the probability goes that you have sinned. David said, I'm going to lock my lips. Do you know what it says in the next verse? The fire burned within me. Oh, isn't that the truth? The fire burned within him. Then out it comes again. Lord, you're going to have to set a guard on our lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Is it true that sometimes we bless God and then go curse men? Does James 3 say, my brethren, these things ought not so to be? We cannot do that. Look at, look at 15.4 in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 15.4. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness therein is a breach in the spirit. A wholesome tongue. That's a tongue that's not full of cursing and bitterness. That's a tongue that's not hiding the poison of asps. That's a tongue that's healthful. 15.4. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life. It feeds people. It helps them grow. Every time you're around a person with a wholesome tongue, you're the better for it because you can pick the fruit of the good words that come out of their mouths and off their, the end of their tongue. Cursing and bitterness. You say, well, I don't curse and I'm not bitter. Well, if you've ever said anything about your brother without a justifiable cause that God himself has defined, then you are guilty of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Matthew five twenty one through 26. It hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. Jesus said, but I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause is worthy of judgment. Judgment. Back into Romans 3, there we go. Let's go to verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Feet are here used as a metonym for the action of running or walking to get toward violence toward someone. Their feet are swift. Not only do they stumble, not only do they walk, but they run. They're swift to shed blood. They love to do violent things to people. Look at Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 16. Proverbs is a great commentary upon practical sins of men. Proverbs 1.16, For their feet run to evil and make haste to shed blood. You say, well, I've never killed anyone. Let me repeat the verse then. Matthew 5.21 and 22. It hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, but I say unto you, that if you are angry with your brother without a cause, you are worthy of judgment. And then it goes on, calling your brother Raka, or calling your brother a fool, you're in danger of hell fire itself. Their feet are swift to shed blood. This comes from Isaiah 59 and verse 7, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And the 14th verse came from Psalm 10 in verse 7. God hates violence and the violent. Look at chapter 6. And verse 17, are you always kind and helpful to everyone in your life? Or are you hurtful and vicious toward them? Overbearing and critical. Proverbs six seventeen is a list of seven things that God hates. And notice the last clause in verse 17 is hands that shed 
innocent blood. We do not want to be guilty of that. Do you hate gratuitous violence? Hollywood loves it. Or has Hollywood bewitched you? If you think few have ever literally shed blood sinfully, think about abortion. Think about genocide, social experiments, war, violent movies, and the evil thoughts of your own heart. Verse 16 says, destruction and misery are in their ways. What do you leave in your relationships? Do you leave misery? Do you destroy relationships? Have you basically destroyed your marriage because you're a complaining, whining, moody baby? Destruction and misery are in their ways. Don't think about Genghis Khan. Think about you. Destruction and misery are in your way. Have you brought misery on your marriage? Have you brought misery on your parents? Have you brought misery on your children? Have you destroyed your family? Go to hell without that glorious, gracious disjunctive in verse 21. We look at words like destruction and misery are in their ways. We think of a psychopath. We think of a serial killer. We think of Genghis Khan. We think of Adolf Hitler. But this is not talking about any of them. This is talking about the Jews that were worshiping in the temple, worshiping Jehovah in the temple. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Do you cause misery in anyone's life? Have you troubled your own household? You can trouble your household by being moody and quiet. You can trouble your household by being loud and critical. You can trouble your household by being an object of fear in that house instead of an object of love. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Paul would say of himself and Titus, that we were full of envy, malice and envy, hating and hateful and hating one another. In Titus chapter 3, 3, until the grace of God came and saved even him. God is a God of peace. He is a God of war when he has enemies. But when you cause trouble in your marriage, or you cause trouble to your children, or if you're a child, you cause trouble to your parents, and there was no reason for war, then God is at war with you. Because God is a God of peace. He loves peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. James chapter 3, 14 through 18 are so wonderful in that they describe the man who makes peace sows the fruit of righteousness, who constantly goes out of his way to try to make sure that all relationships are happy and peaceful. If you don't do that through neglect, or if you don't do that through viciousness, you're an enemy of God, and you are condemned. And we've all done this at times in various ways. So we're all condemned. But I want to get a practical lesson out of this for all of us to make sure that we are peacemakers in our relationships. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, it tells husbands to dwell with their wives according to knowledge, giving honor, not abusing her, not stepping on her, not making her life miserable, not making her life hopeless. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. How dumb are you? Get some knowledge. She's the weaker vessel. Give honor unto your wife as to the weaker vessel. Or you are right in this passage. Destruction and misery are in their ways. It's not the misery in the sinner. It's the misery in those people around the sinner. Do you cause misery to other people? Do you cause misery to your spouse? 
Misery to your children. Misery to your parents. I just gave you First Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Wives can make their husbands' lives miserable by yakking, complaining, questioning. It's better to dwell in the wilderness, the Bible says, than with a brawling woman in a wide house. There's four things the earth cannot stand, and one of them is an odious woman when she is married. That makes an odious, painful, miserable situation for a husband. And when a wife is obnoxious in public, everyone knows that the poor man is married to an odious woman. And he cannot hide it. He cannot hide it, the Bible says, any more than the ointment of his right hand. When you walk past a man who's got ointment on his hands, you smell it. And when a man's married to an odious woman, everyone can see it, everyone knows it, everyone hears her grating voice, her terrible personality. And so women can cause misery to their husbands. Children can cause misery to their parents, like Esau did by marrying the daughters of the land and causing misery to his parents, Isaac and Rebekah. Parents can cause misery to their children. When the Bible says in Colossians 3.21, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Don't be overbearing with them. So I give you some applications of this verse that gets closer to home than us sitting here thinking about those poor Jews that Paul was raking over the coals in Romans chapter 1 when it was read in the city of Rome. I want you to understand that I and you are in Romans 3 Every clause. But let's get out of it by the grace of God. If we've been saved, let's live like it. Our brother just prayed that several times. If we are the sons of God, then let's live like it. Destruction and misery are in their ways. You know, our nation, live 50% now of all marriages entered into end up in divorce. You say, well, I'm not divorced yet. Yeah, but you probably should be. So what are you bragging about? Are you bragging about the fact that your pastor has saved your marriage a hundred times? Publicly and privately? And the way of peace have they not known. They don't know how to make peace. They won't make peace. They refuse to be at peace. They refuse to say they're sorry. They refuse to get over their little hurts. Their little hurt feelings. And to make peace in a home. Peace is so wonderful. I love peace. I hate fighting. Hate fighting. Love peace. A peaceful family. Like that, those last verses in Psalm 5. Weren't those wonderful? Let the righteous rejoice forever. Happiness. Gladness. Thanksgiving. Praise. And of course, peace. The way of peace have they not known. They don't make peace. It's not talking about they don't know peace with God because they haven't believed in the Lord Jesus Christ yet. This is talking about peace in their relationships, and we all know that we have broken the peace. I'm not talking about teenagers disturbing the peace of the community by running your wide-open exhaust late at night, though that qualifies. I'm talking about us not sowing peace and not having peaceful relationships with everyone in our lives that we can. We don't fight until we are absolutely pushed into a corner and a great big neon sign drops out of heaven with a pure Bible version called the King James Version that tells us now it is time to fight. We don't fight till we get there because we love peace. You say, you sound weak. Well, it sound like David. And I love David. 
Because on my left hip is Goliath's sword, and in my back pocket is a sling. Because in Psalm 144, David said, He has taught my hands to war and my fingers to fight. But But what did David pray for? Lord, get rid of strange children so I don't have to rip their throats open. Get rid of them for me so that our children can grow up in your house, our daughters like polished cornerstones in a palace, our sons like olive plants, grown up in their youth. David fought when he had to, but when he wasn't fighting, pluck, pluck, pluck. So good with my illustrations. Lord, forgive me. I hope I don't take too much away from the Word of God. I love the, I love, look at the, the way of peace have they not known. Brethren, have, have we ever read, have you ever read Romans 3 before? And just read it to somebody saying, this is total depravity. Like it's just a theological lesson. I'm trying to get you inside the words of these clauses. They're ugly, aren't they? No. Paul would say in Romans 7, they ain't ugly. We ugly. It exposes us, doesn't it? All of us. So who's going to be a peacemaker this afternoon? As soon as I unleash you with an amen in a couple of minutes, who's going to be a peacemaker? He loves peacemakers. James, I'm going to read them to you. James 3, 17 and 18. This, was, this is what I got laid on me when I was a teenage rebel and was told about the misery and destruction that I was causing in my family by being a rebel to my two parents. And two Baptist ministers sat with me for a good part of one night and gave me James three fourteen through 18. And this is about the fourth time I've told this publicly. I do remember. I'm just wanting to make sure you remember. Verse 17. The wisdom that is from above is first pure. That is a pure heart. Described in context. Beginning back at around verse 10. The wisdom that is from above is first pure. Then peaceable. What next? Gentle. What next? Easy to be entreated. What next? Full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. That is when you act like God's child. You act like the devil's child in verses 14 through 17. Verse 14, if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, if you are upset inside, if you have bitter envying and strife, if you're fighting mad inside, you know, go ahead and use whatever synonyms you need to help your mind grasp the verse. Glory not and lie not against the truth. Don't call it a matter of principle. It's a matter of pride. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. It comes from hell. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. And for those of you that like to fight at home and you like to fight abroad, we know about your marriages. Sorry. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. You're all messed up. You've got a dysfunctional mess on your hands. So why don't you make peace? You know how we can make peace sometimes? I'm, so, I'm so sorry. I've been an asp. But you can forget the P if you want. I've been an asp in our marriage. Will you forgive me? Drop the P. I have an open sepulcher. 
It's full of dead men's bones. Will you forgive me? I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better wife. I want, a better, I want to be a better son. I want to be a better parent. I want to make peace. Let's have a peaceful, happy, joyful family. The way of peace have they not known. They're going to hell. And the Jews heard that and knew that those scriptures had them. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I, we, I have preached enough on the fear of God before. We could, we could spend sermons on this verse. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Until God regenerates a man, there is no fear of God before his eyes. The fear of God is to want to keep his commandments because you love him and you want to please him and you hate evil and you depart from it. Therefore, there is no fear of God in their eyes because they don't want to do verse 17, 16, 15, 14, or 13. There is no fear of God before their eyes. God does not humble them. God does not scare them. I preach a message like this and you walk out of here bitter. Bitter. I'm bitter. I'm bitter. Life is miserable. I'm bitter. I'm bitter. You're thinking it to yourself. I'm bitter. You're grimacing. You're frowning. We all know that your heart is black and the devil has possessed your soul. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's quoted from Psalm 36.1. David put it this way. The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. David said, I look at a wicked man. And he just sins without regard for God. He hears a sermon and he sins anyway. That tells me something in my heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. When a man fears God, he changes his life, even if that means changing his life every Sunday. Even if that means changing his life every day. When he gets a Proverbs warning or a daily thought from Brother Newell. Every day he's willing to change his life back to the way it should be. He repents, he confesses it to God, and he repents and confesses it to everyone that he's made miserable that's around him. Verse 19, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, Paul said, you Jews understand this right along with me, whatever things soever the law saith, and I've just quoted six of them. There were six quotations just given in verses 10 through 18. It saith to them who are under the law. Remember, verse 9, I'm try- I want you to get These verses, exactly how they were intended by the Holy Spirit, though I have led us a little tiny bit astray to show that you're all in the verses as well. But it applies to Jews because in verse 9 it says, rhetorically, are we better than they? No, in no wise. And since you haven't gotten what I've already proved, let me quote your own scriptures to you. He quotes them six times. He goes through the verses that we've just covered. We're all condemned. The Jews knew they were condemned. And Paul just wants to add this fact. Since you Jews are resting in the law and trusting the Bible so much for your deliverance because it's read every Sabbath day in the synagogues and because you wear it up here in your forehead, let me, let me help you with it. Now we know, we Jews know, we Jews understand that what things soever the law saith, it's saying them primarily to those that are under the law. That, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? What's written in the law isn't saying those things to those that have never heard the law. It's saying to those that are under the law. Why? The law says all these things. The six examples of which I've quoted. It says all these things to those that are under the law to stop every mouth. To shut every mouth. And the whole world can become guilty before God. He's finally got the Jews where he wants them. 
The last straw was their own scriptures putting them right down with us Gentiles to shut their mouths from asking the question, are we better than they? Am I tying this to... Listen, I want to thank two brothers in this church, esteemed brothers. Brothers in this church that know more than 95% of you for writing me this past week and encouraging me about trying to go back, review, rehash, and pull together to get the whole passage. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to extend this series. I want you to understand what that verse is saying right there, and it's real. It's so powerful. You delight in the, the Holy Spirit by the Apostle Paul. When this was read in the church at Rome, the Jews, by the time Paul got done, they would have nothing to say. Where's our Savior? Verse 21 is your Savior. That's why the change takes place right there. Verse 19, now we know that what things, soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. The six quotations that were just made condemn the Jews, that every mouth may be stopped, including the Jewish mouths, which continue to run a whole lot longer than the Gentile mouths. And all the world may become guilty before God, Jews and Gentiles alike. Verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. I just read you six examples of what the law has to say. I just gave you six examples of what the law has to say. Therefore, we may draw a safe conclusion that by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Because have you ever bit someone like an asp with your tongue? Has your throat ever been an open sepulcher? Has the poison of asp ever been under your lips? Have your feet ever been swift to shed blood? Have you ever caused misery to anyone? Have you ever destroyed a relationship? Does it all make plain sense to you? By the grace of God, I hope it does. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For these six quotations that I just gave you, all they have done is show you the knowledge of sin. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. All we have to do is go back and quote a little bit of the law, and we find out that we're all sinners. So far from it being a vehicle of justification... It is the evidentiary proof used in court to condemn us. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Here we are condemned. That's why we need to come back after remission. And hear verse 21. And that's what we'll do in the second assembly. And it has become a very precious verse to me that I quote to the Lord many, many nights in my bed. Verse 21 is precious, word by word. And word by word, I want to share it with you when we come back. We have learned a lesson of Paul condemning the Jews to get them down equal to the Gentiles and the whole world condemned before God so that there is need of a Savior and there is knowledge that it cannot be a synergistic... You understand that from chemistry. You should. There is no possibility of a synergistic plan of salvation. It has to be monergistic. God must save. Because look at the condition we're in. There is no way that we can help ourselves being like this. We can't work with God or cooperate with God to help save ourselves. God must save and God alone. So we're going to come back and we're going to see that. But I hope that you've seen the lesson that Paul used to cut off the Jewish legalists in the church at Rome. And also, by the Holy Spirit, we see the full extent of those commandments also very convincing in their condemnation of us. But I hope that instead of feeling condemned, we know what's coming in verse 21, but we also can see 
in those verses some wisdom on how we ought to live. Because the last passage I read to you is James 3 that said, but the wisdom that is from above is contrary to what is there, and we can live contrary to what is written. God has given us the power to live contrary to what is written there. Contrary to the way the world lives outside. Contrary to how the unregenerate live in this congregation. Contrary to wickedness. We can do it. May your hearts be filled with hope. And may God bless the preaching of his word.